I'll be preaching on peace on earth as part of this series and what that means in relation to the deliverer has come. In two weeks, we're going to visit the text where Jesus and his parents are refugees in Egypt. You may not have thought of the Holy Family as refugees in a day when we have millions of refugees, even new ones fleeing Syria right now. The Holy Family, they were refugees too. And what that might mean for us and what it means when the Deliverer comes and you are a refugee. So we have a number of texts we're going to visit. We're going to look at it from the point of the deliverer. The idea of the deliverer is deeply embedded in all of the scripture. In the old covenant as well as the new, over and over again, the word deliver is used. It was Moses who was the great deliverer of the Hebrew children when they were slaves in Egypt. It was Joshua who delivered the promised land on behalf of the Hebrew children. During the time of the judges, some 200 years, perhaps more, when they were 12 loosely confederated tribes, when the enemy came, God would raise up a deliverer among his people, one of the judges. The two most famous are Samson and Gideon. You remember them. They were judges. They were deliverers. In fact, that word for deliverer that is used to describe the judges comes from the word to save. There's a text in the prophets that I wanted to read for you. It comes from Isaiah 59. It sets the text, the context for the idea of deliverance in the New Testament as well as the Old. In Isaiah 59:14, the scripture says, Justice is driven back and righteousness stands at a distance. Truth has stumbled in the streets. Honesty cannot enter. Truth is nowhere to be found, and whoever shuns evil becomes a prey. The Lord looked and was displeased that there was no justice. He saw that there was no one. He was appalled there was no one to intervene. So his own arm worked salvation for him, and his own righteousness sustained him. He put on righteousness on his breastplate and the helmet of salvation on his head. He put on the garments of vengeance and wrapped himself in zeal as in a cloak. For he will come like a pent-up flood that the breath of the Lord drives along. The Redeemer will come to Zion. To those in Jacob who repent of their sins, declares the Lord. The Apostle Paul picked up on this Old Testament test. Old Testament text from the prophet Isaiah and he quoted it in Romans 11 when he talks about how God will deliver his people and then he concludes all Israel will be saved. Jesus taught us to use the word deliver in the model prayer. Do not lead us into temptation but what? Deliver us. Deliver us from evil. Five times the verb is turned into a noun in the Old Testament so that it becomes deliverer. And Jesus himself is our deliverer as God promised in the Old Covenant. 
I'm in Matthew chapter 2 this morning, starting with verse 1. After Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea, during the time of King Herod, Magi from the east came to Jerusalem and asked, Where is the one who has been born King of the Jews? We saw his star in the east and have come to worship him. When King Herod heard this, he was disturbed. And all Jerusalem with him. When he had called together all the people's chief priests and the teachers of the law, he asked them where the Christ was to be born. In Bethlehem, in Judea, they replied, for this is what the prophet has written. But you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah, for out of you will come a ruler who will be the shepherd of my people Israel. Then Herod called the Magi secretly and found out from them the exact time the star had appeared. He sent them to Bethlehem and said, Go and make a careful search for the child. As soon as you find him, report to me so that I too may go and worship him. After they had heard the king, they went on their way, and the star they had seen in the east went ahead of them until it stopped over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they were overjoyed. On coming to the house, they saw the child with his mother, Mary, and they bowed down and worshipped him. Then they opened their treasures and presented him with gifts of gold and incense and of myrrh. And having been warned in a dream not to go back to Herod, they returned to their country by another route. When times are dark, when times are dark like this, when the people of God are under the heel of the oppressor, when they don't know where their salvation will come from, when times are dark, God is at work. And times are dark in Israel. Not like the dark that we might feel. The politics of the day are indeed oppressive. The king is Herod, half Arminian, half Jew. He insists on taking the title King of the Jews. He has brokered that position with Caesar in Rome. And truly, when he comes to power in 37 BC, King Herod is a vassal of the Roman Caesar. That's all he is. Israel is not free or self-determining, not even with a king. And King Herod, some people think, is paranoid maybe schizophrenic. He is murderous. He kills some of his children, some of his wives. He has a reputation for being out of balance and out of control. This is the man who rules Israel in the time of the birth of Jesus. King Herod is the great builder and he accomplished colossal building feats. 
the second temple, the sometimes called Herod's temple. And it was more grand and glorious even than Solomon's temple. Herod made sure that the colonnade stretched for hundreds of yards and covered the entire top of the mountain in that great compound that was the second temple. If you go to Israel today, you'll see the Wailing Wall. Those are the stones from the second temple exposed where the Jews and others go to pray. Herod built Caesarea Maritima, where Paul was incarcerated for two years, where he talked to Festus and Felix, you remember. Almost thou persuadest me to be a Christian. That's what Agrippa said. And one of them said, great learning has driven you mad. Well, those trials happened in Caesarea Maritima, and those ruins are amazing. Herod built that on the Mediterranean Sea there in Israel. He also rebuilt the great crow's nest, that fortress, Masada, on a pinnacle of rock beside the Dead Sea, rising 900 feet. Unassailable, insurmountable. A small cadre of rebels held that peak for two years against the entire Roman army until they built a ramp, an earthen ramp, rising hundreds of feet into the air and so brought it down. And then there was the Herodium that Herod built early in his reign. He took a mountain near, near Bethlehem and had the slaves carry dirt until it was 200 feet taller than it had previously been. And into that mountain he built a great hall as large as this, as this space right here and colonnaded you can still see the grand stonework in that hall and underneath it tunnels that honeycombed the mountain great pools larger than Olympic swimming pools he built on that mountain and Josephus said he was buried there halfway up the mountain so that he could overlook the fields of Bethlehem and feel himself the superior of King David. Only a few years ago, archaeologists unearthed his tomb. And you can pass it now as you take the trail up that mountain where the Herodium was built. Herod wanted to be superior to King David in every way. David was from Bethlehem. That was the city of David. And Herod wanted to make sure he left his imprint on those fields where David tended the sheep. And so he built the mountain there, and he was buried there. These times are dark. Herod is merciless. Rome rules the earth. The Jews have no freedom. Israel is enslaved. When times are dark, God sends a promise. God reminds his people of what he is doing. But you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah are by no means least among the rulers of Judah, for out of you will come a ruler 
who will be the shepherd of my people, Israel. My people. God uses the term of endearment to refer to his own. Oftentimes he does this. They are my people. And why are they his people? Because he chose them among all the peoples of the earth. Not because they were so good or wise or great, but simply for his own purposes, for his own glory. He chose them to be his. And over and over again, he calls them my people. You know, the scripture says that we, who were not the people of God, have now become the people of God. So Jesus says, my sheep hear my voice. And I know them and they follow me. And we are now part of my people through the work of Christ upon the cross. God reminds his people in these dark times that he is at work behind the scenes when you may not know or see his hand in Bethlehem, that troubled spot. God does his work. The promise is sent. God reiterates his word. I am working invisibly right now, he says to his people. I'm preparing someone who will come. He will be a ruler like David. David was Israel's beloved monarch. For 40 years, he ruled Israel. When we first meet David, I envision him skipping stones in a pond, watching over the sheep. Samuel has come to Jesse's house to anoint a new king. And seven sons of Jesse march before the prophet. And the prophet says, God hasn't chosen any of them. Do you have another boy? Yeah, there's little David. He's out tending the sheep out back. We'll send for him. We're not going to sit down till he shows up. And they bring David. Ruddy in complexion, the youngest of the group. And Samuel says, kneel before the king. And he anoints David as a boy, king of Israel. And it is a love story between this little shepherd boy and the people of God. He doesn't immediately take the throne. He comes, becomes the deliverer of Israel before he takes the throne. When the Philistines are challenging God's people and Goliath is saying, choose someone to fight for me. It is young David accidentally there who steps forward and says to Saul, I'll take down this giant. Who does he think he is? Defying the people of God and the armies of Israel. We are introduced to David as this young man of courage and wisdom who knows the heart of God. And all through the Scripture, the Scripture talks about David's heart. He had a heart like the heart of God. And he had a heart for God. And when the prophets and the kings look forward to the time that God will send the deliverer, they say, he's going to be a son of David. He's going to be the son like, he's going to be a king like David. That's who God will send. 
And so the prophet says, in the land of Judah, David is from the tribe of Judah. There is a little hamlet, and its name is Bethlehem. And out of Bethlehem, God will bring a ruler who will shepherd my people. He's not going to be the kind of ruler that just brings down the hammer. He's going to be the kind of ruler that a shepherd is to a sheep. I had the privilege of witnessing shepherds taking care of the sheep just two weeks ago. We have a flock of sheep on our farm, as I've mentioned to you. And do you know, they have each one of those ewes numbered, and the shepherds know which ewe it is when you say number 86. Did you see number 86? She looks like she's limping. And one of those shepherds, I graduated from high school with him, will go into the pasture and he'll scream at the top of his lungs some incredible hoot and holler, and the sheep just start running towards you. If you're not used to this, it scares you to death. Because it's just... They're coming as fast as they can, the ewes and the bucks, and they're all gathered around. And they come from different parts of the pasture, right to the place where the shepherd is, because although he is the ruler and he might grab you by the leg and stick you in the, in the uh, trailer and haul you off to another pasture, you trust him. Because he brings you the food and he takes care of you. And he's only putting you in the trailer to protect your little lambs from the wolves. He's taking them someplace where the wolves can't get to them and the, and the coyotes and the foxes can't get to them. We have predators on our farm, so they have a place where they take them as soon as the lambs drop. And the sheep absolutely trust them. And the prophet says, God's going to send a ruler. He's going to come from the city of David. He's going to shepherd my people, Israel. God reminds his people of the promise and the beautiful thing he intends to do. God shows them a path in the middle of the darkness. Things have never been so dark in Israel as they seem to be in the first century. It's a tough time for the people of God. And it is at this time that God shows them the path. Now, people aren't listening like they ought to be listening. And so God shows the path to some folks who are not part of the covenant. That's who the Magi are, the wise men. They're coming from the east. They're not part of the covenant people. But they can read, and they read the prophets, and they saw the star. They connected the two, and they came looking for the king of the Jews. We've seen his star in the east and have come to worship him. Who would have thought that three wise men, magi from the east, 
would be the ones who noticed and announced the birth of the new king. But God's hand is not shortened that he cannot save. Amen? You're praying for lost loved ones and you don't know how God will intervene. But you can pray with confidence because God can use magi from the east to point the way to the Savior. He can use avenues you never dreamed of, you never thought of, you cannot imagine to touch that brother or that sister or that parent that you're praying for. And sometimes it's not going to be you that breaks through the darkness of their lives in the troubled times they live in. It will be somebody else that God appoints and brings their way to show them the way to the Savior. Often our prayer needs to be, oh God, break into their lives however you can. Because we know that you can. And we're praying for your Holy Spirit to make a way where we can't see a way. Just like you did at Bethlehem. God shows the path with a star in the east. And the wise men follow that path. Are you wise? You want to have wisdom, right? Young people, you want to have wisdom. The older I get, the more I wish that young people would seek the wisdom of God. You know, instead of sowing wild oats when you're young, if you would just be faithful and seek God's face and follow His path. And when you see the way, walk in it. It's not like God is challenge you to discover some obscure path yourself it's not as if he has placed it upon you instead he says the way itself has come to you arise and walk St. Augustine the way has come to you just like it did at Bethlehem through these wise men and you follow the path God shows you at the dark time in your world. The path that God has promised. And when you do, you reach the place of worship. What God is doing this holiday season is lighting the way so that people might come to the place of worship. When they found the child, they bowed down and worshipped him. They had brought their gifts. We assumed there were three wise men because there are three gifts. Though we do not know, really, the number. But there is gold, incense, and myrrh, which they present in the house. And yes, they're in a house now, not in a manger. You may want to sort that out for your holiday experience that the wise men do not come to the manger in Bethlehem, although we plant them there, all right? And it's okay, because they're part of the Christmas story, but likely, maybe, it, maybe it's two years later. 
And Joseph and Mary have moved into a house in Bethlehem. They actually stayed in Bethlehem after that terrible trip from Nazareth to Bethlehem when, when Mary was great with child. And we picture her on the donkey. I've actually uh, been to a field in Bethlehem where they say that Mary went into labor. We called it the field of contractions, lacking another term. But when we think about Mary making that long journey, all of that is, is very difficult. And then we discover with the wise men's visit that Mary and Joseph are now in a house in Bethlehem, and that's okay. They stayed there. When we visit the Holy Family as refugees, they will be uprooted from the place where they've lived, maybe for several years, and they flee for their lives. When times are dark, God reminds us of his promise. God shows us a path, and his people worship. God's opening up a path for you this Christmas season. Returning to Bethlehem in our minds and hearts, reading about it in the scriptures, what the Holy Spirit wants to do is bring us all into this journey. The journey of the deliverance that he provides through his son Jesus. He wants to show us, show us the way. And it is our responsibility as we see the way and make our way to fall down and worship you cannot follow the path that God is providing for you without, in the end, worshiping Him. Because worship is part of what He wants to do. In fact, it is fundamentally what He wants to do in you. He wants to bring you to the place of worship. Where you bow your head before the King, you acknowledge the Savior born in Bethlehem, as King of kings and Lord of lords. You kneel before him and you place the most precious things in your life and in your possession. You place them at his feet. Lord, here's my career. Here's my marriage. Here is my family. Here is all I have and all I am. You are the king. I bow down and worship. Paul describes this event of worship, this moment of worship in this way. He says, Be not conformed to this world, but be transformed. How? I beg you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, present your body a living sacrifice holy and acceptable to God. This is your spiritual service of worship. You can't celebrate Christmas. You can't celebrate Christmas. You can't celebrate Christmas unless you bow down before the Savior. Whatever in you prevents your knee from falling before him. It's got to go.
Because Christmas is in the end a call to worship the Christ child, the Savior, the Deliverer. And he's calling everybody in the room. Let's bow together. There may be somebody here in the room who has heard the call of God and you know God is speaking to you and you have not yet really surrendered. You've not said, yes, Lord. Just like I am, I'm coming to you. Here is a moment to get your heart right so that you really can worship this Christmas. To prepare your heart for what God wants to do. To start this season with a bowed head and a bowed knee. Maybe you've never trusted Christ as Savior. Right where you are, you could pray this prayer Lord, I know I'm a sinner. Please forgive me for my sin. I believe you died on the cross for me. And I want you in my life. Maybe you've trusted Christ already, but you followed a long ways off. You've been far away and distant, maybe for a long time. And you know the Savior is calling you to a new commitment, don't you? You know He's not satisfied with where you are. And neither are you, and that's the truth. And for you, Christmas worship this year means getting back in the place you know you must be. Surrendering again, offering again your body as a living sacrifice recommitting your life to the Christ who saved you and rescued you through his work on the cross. God, we pray today that you will prepare our hearts for this season. Lord, that you will be to us the deliverer. God, deliver us from evil. Lord, deliver us from our fears, the temptations that beset us, the sin that so easily ensnares us. Deliver us from the pride that keeps us back from you. From our own ideas that insert themselves between us and you. God, help us to be able to worship even today, even in this moment, Lord, to bow our heads before you and acknowledge you as King of kings and Lord of lords, not just in the universe and the world, but in our own heart. Have your way in us. God, I pray for that man or woman who entered this room today, not knowing you yet as Savior and friend, that you might draw them to yourself even in this moment. God, we're looking to hear from you. We want to respond in a way that pleases you. We need your grace and your forgiveness. So do your work in us, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.